Welcome everybody to the second episode of the Sweet Spot Podcast, where we dive into the intersection between the utilization of data and human decision making within baseball development and gameplay. I'm your host, Jake Lebovich, and I'm here with my boy and my co-host, Mark Abramovitz. Mark, why don't you tell the people what we got on tap for today? On today's episode, Jake and I sat down with Nick Kuzia, professional pitcher and performance coach. Nick has played in the Rockies, Tigers, and Padres organizations. We're going to speak about Nick's path to the pros, Rapsodo and Trackman, and the pros and cons of each technology, the discrepancy in data gathering and utilization across teams within the minor leagues, seam shifted wake, the importance of velocity, the influence of biomechanics on pitch design, the trade-off between the eye test and technology, and exploiting vertical and horizontal axes to maximize deception. All right, we got a lot on tap. So without further ado, let's introduce Nick Kuzia to the podcast. What's going on, guys? Thanks for having me. Of course. So this is a nice full circle moment for me, as Nick and I have known each other since 2020, where we did some remote training together during the pandemic. And I remember reaching out to you for some guidance in how to translate my power output on my shuffle pulldowns to my mound velocity. And at the time, I was shuffling 94 miles per hour, but I was only throwing in the upper 80s on the mound. And I remember that there were a couple of reasons that I had been intrigued to work with you to want to help me reach my goals. And number one, obviously, it was super exciting for me to learn from someone who was currently doing it. And you're a professional pitcher who throws 95 plus miles per hour and you shuffle 100 and so to have the opportunity to learn from you was really, really cool. And number two is because the way that you got to where you are is pretty unorthodox. And I really related to that personally. And it drew me to want to learn from someone who also didn't have the clearest path to what his final product was. So why don't we kind of jump into it? And why don't you tell us about your baseball journey, kind of start from high school and tell us how you got to where you are today. So I don't know where we start. I grew up in Connecticut, played four years at Seymour High School baseball. Like we were a pretty small school. There were no cuts on the baseball team. I was one of the better players there in town. It was a small town again, not like a lot to pick from. You know, played some travel ball outside of that where I wasn't always the best. Um, so I kind of kept up on competition that way. Um, and then I was committed to Herkimer County Community College is what it was called at the time. Um, my brother had gone there, JUCO. I committed there. I was only getting D3 offers out of high school. So I, I wanted to go D1. I wanted to play at a high level. So that kind of gave me the option, you know, like go to JUCO, play a year or two, and then maybe, you know, get into D1 that way. And then my senior year of high school, so I was committed there. And then senior year, I jumped to, I was throwing 84, 86 at a showcase where before I had been my, my junior summer, which is, you know, arguably the most important, I was topping out at like 77. So no D1 was going to show interest in me. So committed to JUCO. Then I was 84, 86 in that showcase, got some interest from a couple schools. UMass Lowell was one of them. UConn was interested a little bit and some other schools, but UMass Lowell had, they'd offer me a scholarship with, you know, two months until my freshman year started. So that was a good situation. So I kind of, I guess, decommitted from JUCO, if you want to say that, and rolled right into to UMass Lowell, where 
I got a lot of innings freshman year, which was cool. We were a really young team that was previously Division Two the year prior to that, and they were just transitioning. So I feel like it was a good um, a good mix. Basically, a, a bunch of D two guys I was going in with, but we were going to play Division One competition. So that was a good situation for me to get a bunch of innings in as a freshman. Again, sophomore year, I, I got a lot more innings, and that's kind of when pro ball kind of started to get in the sights, I guess. I started throwing a bit harder. We got a new pitching coach who introduced us to weighted balls for the first time. He had done some stuff with the driveline program, so he brought that over. Then I was throwing harder, and he was like, dude, you, you got a chance to, to play professionally. Like, you got some good stuff. So I kind of started focusing more on that. And uh, so I played three years at Lowell. I didn't get drafted. We went through the whole draft. I listened from the first pick to the last pick every every day for all three days. And then I didn't get picked. So I reported to summer ball a week later. And then the first night I got there, I moved in. The Padre scout texted me and was like, hey, do you still want to sign? Like, yeah, hell yeah, I do. So I went back and forth for a little bit. And he's like, all right, let me get the paperwork and all that. And I drove home and uh, he's like, yeah, you got a flight Thursday. And that was on like a Tuesday or something. So I had a pretty quick turnaround and got out there and kind of started my professional career that way. And I was with the Padres from 2017 to 2021. 2022, I was with the Tigers. I was rule five in December to them. And then I was rule five again over to Colorado for the 2023 season. And now I am a free agent looking for a new team. That's obviously a really unique path to how you got to the position you are today. We can take this time to throw in a little PSA for any listeners connected to any MLB teams. This guy's a free agent right now, and he's absolutely disgusting. Nearly touching 100 miles an hour, wipeout slider. So come on, let's uh, let's get this guy signed, why don't let's we? Let's get it rolling, everybody. <laughs> so reflecting on that journey that you just took us all through, throughout your baseball career, at what point did data and technology present themselves to you? So I'd kind of... I'd followed driveline decently early, um, not as early as their chicken wire you know, attic days or whatever their, their first thing. I think once my new pitching coach came in, he was at Iona before he's bounced around. He's been in pro ball. I think he's at, he's at Iowa now. He was really forward thinking a young guy and he kind of brought, you know, he brought in the weighted balls and all that kind of stuff. So I was like, okay, this is a different side of baseball that I had, you know, most people had never seen, you know, there has been weighted balls, but there's never been like a program with it. Or, or a system that came with it. So he introduced me to that. And then I started looking more into driveline stuff. Before that, our pitching coach wouldn't even have a radar gun at bullpens. It was like, you know, just throw strikes and worry about that. So he introduced that. I started reading up more on it, but I actually didn't get actual, like as a player able to dig in, in bullpens or throwing or any of that um, into data, like, you know, stuff like rap Soto track, man. I didn't have that until 2019 spring training. The Padres had gotten a couple rap Sotos for the bullpens. They had a track man, but it was big leagues only, but they got us a few rap Sotos and I wanted to, you know, pop on there and be the first to kind of test that out. So I think that was the first time I can remember throwing on a rap Soto come to find out most of the information that they give on there isn't really as useful as we thought it was just because of the way the system is, which you can, I can get into, but that's, <laughs> it, it, there's different ways the systems track, but I got into that. And then I started looking up kind of numbers with that. I was also doing 
driveline remote training, that spring training. So I was going back and forth with my pitching coach on the numbers that they were showing me and kind of learning from him. And he was the one that kind of explained, you know, Rapsodo versus TrackMan, how they track it, what's useful, what you can see, what you can adjust. So 2019 spring is when we kind of got into it. And then year after year, there's been, you know, they added some Edutronic cameras. They ended up getting TrackMan. The other teams, obviously, that I played with had TrackMan and stuff, which is pretty well accepted. But for those teams, it was a little bit behind because we were we were playing teams like Dodger Affiliates and they had TrackMan set up for everyone's bullpen, like side. It, it didn't matter. If they're getting on the mound, they had TrackMan. And that was, you know, 2018, 2019 when Padres were just getting Repsoto. Other teams didn't even have like slow-mo camera or any of that stuff. So unfortunately and fortunately, that's when I was introduced. Other teams, it took much longer. When I went to the Tigers, they said they were still on you know, 10 minute throwing programs. And it was super old, like really old school. They got a bunch of new school guys, a bunch of Dodger, you know, pitching guys to kind of move in. But I think teams are kind of catching up with that stuff now. And it's pretty basic. For our listeners, could you go into a little bit of differences between Rapsodo, TrackMan, and maybe what you're using the slow motion camera for? You can go into as much or as little detail as you want to with those is obviously a lot that you can go into with all the metrics that they show you. So... Rapsodo infers pitch movement based on pictures of the ball, takes super slow-mo pictures and infers where the ball is going to go. Trackman tracks the ball from your hand to the mitt or the target or whatever it is and infers all the spin numbers, tilt, movement, infers all of that based on what the ball actually did in flight. So Rapsodo, to me, it's good for velo and for spin efficiency. The radar on it's good and the spin efficiency, it takes slow-mo pictures so it can get, you know, the, it, 100% efficiency is 100% of the spin is creating movement on the pitch. Now we've come to learn that with seam shifted wake, how you orient the seams, how you, you know, how hard you're throwing it. Guys throw really good sweepers and really good sinkers because of seam shifted wake and the way the air interacts with the ball. So for me, I think, TrackMan is more important because it actually tracks what the ball did from your hand to the mitt. We're not inferring what it did in space, right? Where it went from my hand to the catcher. I want to know what it did there and then let the computer spit out the numbers for me. I don't need it to spit out where the ball did or did not go because I can clearly see that. So TrackMan's able to, it gives you the movement based on that. So what you release the ball at is not going to be the same axis that it is at when it gets to the mitt. So people are finding out that, you know, the air changes the axis of the ball, which is when you get your backed up sliders um, that kind of move like two seams. Or for example, I threw a, a sinker at, I released it at a one o'clock axis, but because of the airflow on the ball and the seams, it changed to, by the time it got to the plate, it was at two thirty. That makes a ton of sense. And that's obviously a very refined and professional take on the differences between these two when you say that you first started learning about these kind of around 2019, was it digestible at the time and it was right away useful for your training or did it start off as a lot of numbers on a screen and not sure which technology would be good for what application and how many days, weeks or months or years did it take to get comfortable with all this stuff? For sure. At the beginning, it was just like, here's a bunch of numbers figured out. No one else had worked with Rapsodo or any of that stuff. 
no one really knew how to understand and then teach with it as much as maybe some other teams or other people had, but it was in its really early stages. So a lot of it was like, here's a bunch of numbers. They would have us in the computer room. Like you had a bunch of video. They had your rap soda reports. They ended up having your TrackMan reports from bullpens. And at the beginning, they were like, here's a bunch of information, you know, which was cool that they gave us that information because some teams wouldn't do that. But here's some info. And like, if you can figure something out with that and help yourself pretty much, you know, give it a try, talk to a coach, whatever. So we I kind of got thrown in the fire in that aspect, which wasn't a bad thing because I was really interested in it and kind of forced to learn on my own. And people I knew, like I was talking to my, my driveline coach at the time, a college coach, um, I had some people to bounce some stuff off of. So I had a bunch of numbers and then kind of just looked at it all and learned along the way. Uh, I don't know. Obviously, I'm still learning. Everyone's still learning about new data that's coming out, um, especially with Hawkeye in professional stadiums. Colleges have kinetracks like Wake Forest has a pitching lab with slow-mo biomechanics. I think, you know, Driveline kind of started all that with the, the biomechanics and basically making a lab like that. But there's more popping up, you know, pro ball. I know the Rockies just got one. They were bragging about it. Pro ball teams are starting to get them. So like the pitch flight stuff and all that is it's not basic now, but it's it's more well-known, and now they're getting into mechanics, deception, that kind of thing, and how it affects ball flight and, you know, what makes a really unique arsenal that hitters won't see because then that those are the things that are more successful. So I think there, there's obviously still a lot that we're always learning. I keep researching it. I keep meeting new people, Twitter, baseball, whatever, and kind of bounce ideas off other people, and that's kind of how I've been learning. So now that your knowledge and expertise has gotten to a specific level, what are, in your opinion, some of the most important metrics that you focus on when building your arsenal or helping other people build arsenals? What are some metrics for our listeners that you feel are overrated or underrated, for example? I say number one is always velocity. Anything and everything. It's the easiest objective data point that you can get. You don't need a track man. You don't need a rap soto. You can get a radar gun and throw into a net. You throw to whatever, like velocity is the easiest or the, the lowest hanging fruit for a lot more players than pitch movement at first or what's in your arsenal or, you know, whatever the case is. You just need a radar gun and you throw into it and it tells you how hard it is. And the harder you throw, the better your stuff is. The harder, the harder your fastball is, the harder your off speed gets, right? So, People train velo all the time. You lift your fastball floor. You're also lifting your off speed, um, which makes those better. So I think that's data point number one. I think that's where everyone looks first. Once you get to a certain level, then it's it's velocity. And then it's, okay, what do you do unique? Do you have a really good fastball? Do you have a really good slider? Do you have really good of both of those? Do you, you have three really good pitches? So like, for example, right? So after velocity, like you were saying, you have a really good slider, a really good changeup. What are some of those key metrics that you look for to make an elite slider or an elite changeup in your expertise? So there's different there's different buckets of sliders and changeups and off speed. You got your fastball. Everyone has their primary fastball. Then you go to the next off speed pitch, which is usually a breaking ball. Sliders tend to perform the best. Um, there's gyros. There's what they call death balls now, which is kind of a curveball slider hybrid, slurve, sweeper, whatever. There's all these different ones that 
are described by the name kind of of how they move and one isn't really better than the other. So you're not just going to take a kid and, and say, or, you know, a pro pitcher or whatever and say, okay, we're just going to give you a sweeper and like, let's just throw it at the wall and see if it works. Right. I think you have to look at the arsenal as a whole. And then when you're looking at the arsenal, you need to know, does this guy buy a supination or pronation? What's going to be easy for him? What's going to be difficult? Um, guys that bias towards supination, they're going to be able to spin the ball really well, good at sliders, curveballs, usually have lower efficiency fastballs, which can be good for sinkers, or sometimes it doesn't work for those guys. So, you know, if you have a supinator, then you might say, okay, maybe you should throw two different sliders or throw a cutter and a slider. A guy that pronates better might have a better four-seam fastball, which works well against lefties and righties. So he's got a really good fastball and then maybe has a good change up off of that. Um, and then he needs something to work better against right-handed hitters. So he's working on a slider. Um, a lot of those times those guys have a gyro. So it's not like one is better than the other, you know, just cause one slider has more horizontal break doesn't mean it's better. Cause you know, it could be a super large horizontal sweeper at 73 or the guy can throw a gyro at like 87. So you can't just take horizontal break or vertical break into account and you can't just have velo because if he's throwing just a cement mix that like a, a bad fastball that he thinks is a slider, that's that's not good either because then it's not really an off speed pitch. So that's why I say it's kind of like velocity first and then everything else after that is kind of an, um, an umbrella of things and you have to take it case by case, which is your your typical answer, oh, it's a case-by-case case basis, but that's that's kind of how it is because obviously nobody's the same. Everyone's unique in their own way, how they move, how they throw, what they can do with the ball, all that. Um, so I think before you tell somebody to do something, you should just step back and watch and observe for a little bit and then you know maybe try to make some changes. Yeah, this case-by-case case example is probably exactly where the science of this stuff meets the art and where the data meets the coaching and – I know it is case by case, and I don't ask this to pigeonhole you into one side or the other, but do you find generally when you're working with athletes or even for your own arsenal, do you kind of use the eye test and the feel test first and see what kind of things are working and then supplement your decisions with what the data is telling you? Or do you say, all right, we've got six different pitches that either I or some guy can throw and we're going to look at the data and we're going to build out the arsenal from there. What do you kind of have one approach over the other that you find works better? That's a good question. I'd probably say that I test first, just because a lot of the times you won't have, you won't have the data in front of you. So you're, you're stuck with, okay, what, what am I seeing? And usually, you know, after you've seen a zillion pitches, you can tell, okay, this guy rides it really well. He sinks it. Well, he's got a good slider, good change up. Like, what's good about them, even without a hitter in the box, you can, you can kind of tell. So working with the eye test first and then moving off of that. So like I'm working with a college kid right now. He hasn't been on TrackMan or Soto, nothing. I've just, I've been working with him for a couple of weeks and kind of just seeing how he moves and the way he, he throws the ball. I can kind of tell he's got a, a good riding fastball, which sometimes also cuts a little bit. So I'm like, okay, I know what we're working with there. And then you kind of, you can build your arsenal off that fastball. So now we're working on his breaking ball, which he's had a slider and a curveball, which have both been the same below in his bullpens. His 
curveball is kind of slurvy sometimes, but it is sharp and it moves more. So at the same velo, the pitch that moves more is generally better. That one creates more depth, which means there's a better vertical split, which means hitters have to decide, do I want to swing high? Do I want to swing low? Those, you know, he's a relief pitcher in college. So two pitches is probably going to get him through what he needs to do. Having a third pitch is good, but his lowest hanging fruit is velocity right now. That's going to make him better more than, you know, using training economy on a third pitch. So just from not seeing TrackMan, I, I can kind of tell that's where that's his path that he's going on, but I'm hoping to get on it to actually see the numbers to kind of see if I'm, I can prove myself right in what I'm seeing. Um, and then also give him an idea of like, show him here, here are the values of what you are throwing right now to give you a more objective feel for it. So if you throw one curveball and it looks kind of eh, like here are the numbers on it. And then you throw a really good one. Here are the numbers on it. Here's how much more it moved. Maybe it didn't really move that much more and it was just the location you threw it in and it really wasn't a bad pitch. So I think a lot of the times using, I guess, the eye test first and then the data after um, can be helpful. There's times when you can just like teams look at guys on a computer. They just look, they only look at the data, then they pull up video and they watch video, but they don't really know. Um, like they haven't worked with them. They don't know how their body moves, how they're spinning the ball. They just see like, okay, this guy throws a 15 inch slider. He doesn't have anything in between. We have to give him a cutter. It's like, okay, well, you know, if he's tried making a cutter before, does he, can he not cut the ball? Is it slow when he throws it? So it's not really valuable. So there's a lot of things that you're missing when you're just looking at the data. Like data is a really good tool, but baseball is a human game. There's the human element. We all move differently. We bias towards certain things and in the way we move, the way we throw, pronation, supination, all that stuff. So there's more to than just the computer, right? Um, but the computer is definitely a, a huge tool that we can use to kind of push ourselves in the right direction of what we want to do. Definitely agree with those points. And at the end of the day, like you said, it is a human game and we need to cater to that first and foremost. Do you find that there are any areas that jump out to you where the eye test, let's say, just doesn't tell a good story at all. And you really need to go to the data and say, here's something that we're just plainly going to miss if we're not looking at the TrackMan, Rapsodo, slow-mo camera, et cetera. Ooh, that's hard to say for me because if anything, if anything performs well or does good in the real world, like without knowing the data, I, I almost always go to why is it good which usually you can find an explanation for i feel like sometimes it's the other way around where a pitcher is using a pitch and it's performing well and people don't really know why or it doesn't grade out well on most models of why this pitch is good i think it's kind of i would say it's a little more backwards in that aspect i can't really think of anything off the top of my head where i would say like you know like i test like the, the data says one thing and the eye test says another. I guess unless you're backwards engineering a pitch and you're like, okay, I want a sweeper. It's got to be 15 and whatever, zero vert or something. You make it, the guy throws it, and then it's getting hit all over the park. Um, I guess if you want to if you want to call it that way where people will try to use the data to create something and then it doesn't work. I 
feel like people can be misled with certain data points if they're looking at just satisfying those values to get a player to throw a pitch and not realizing like maybe it doesn't work with their arsenal or he changes his mechanics so the hitter sees the ball earlier or you know it's just getting hit around or something like it's not performing as well as it did for Jimmy next door who was throwing the exact same slider allegedly uh, but he has a different release point or you know a foot more extension or something else that maybe you didn't look at with the data and then it changes what actually happens to piggyback off your last point i think when you don't have that data accessible to you, something that could also be useful that I use with remote athletes all the time is overlaying techniques, right? And that is taking the videos of multiple pitches and putting them over one another to see how they move in relation to each other when you don't necessarily know the exact metrics of how much horizontal or vertical movement a pitch has. And I had a college athlete who was in a similar situation as the one who you were training where his curveball and his slider were different pitches in his head, but were identically, they moved the exact same. And based off the rest of his arsenal, we had to decide which one to keep or which one to throw out. And if we were able to, you know, make one separate different from the other. And by using those overlaying techniques, we were able to see as we progressed, did those pitches split apart from each other or did they end up just keeping the same movement? Um, so, to branch into your personal pitch development, I know that you are someone who's built a super successful profile off of your sinker, primarily focusing on horizontal break and run. What are some of the reasons that you're now focusing on developing an elite forcing fastball or cutter, rudder combo, investing in vertical motion as well? So I've always had trouble first left-handed hitters, which is pretty common for um side armors horizontal guys sinker primary pitchers just because the ball runs back out into their barrel against righties obviously it runs in on them so bad contact it's not on the barrel but generally i've had trouble against lefties so the when i got rule five to the tigers their plan was which the dodgers had done a little bit and those guys came from the dodgers so their plan was to add a cutter with me and kind of bridge the gap between my sinker, which had say 17 inches of horizontal. I don't know exactly, but a lot of horizontal arm side. And then my slider had 14 or 15 glove side. So it was a huge separator and they were thinking hitters can tell which one is which out of the hand because it moves so much. They don't have enough chance of being a strike and looking the same and tunneling. Like you were saying with the overlays, they would have to cross each other and then, come back so their idea was let's get a cutter we'll bridge the gap something right in between where now they have to decide is it going to be extreme right extreme left or kind of still middle it didn't work out as well as i wanted to maybe not as well as they wanted to lefties still hit me decently righties ended up hitting me better than they usually have but that could have been a pitch usage problem whatever but they wanted me using my cutter a ton, obviously, to, to get used to throwing it. And that's kind of when I started throwing the cutter that would bridge the gap between sinker and slider. And then last year, I got more comfortable with it. And then I was I was throwing it a tick harder. I think it was 89 last year. But after looking last year, 
at the data and the, the evidence, like in my head, I'm like, damn, still lefties are still hitting me. I feel like they're, I'm not having success against them in the beginning of the year. I was, but kind of, I'd say the, the second two thirds of the season, I wasn't having as much success. So I'm like, I, I gotta go, I gotta go check it out. I gotta go see why, see if there's a explanation. And I found out that the exit below against it wasn't super high, but the launch angle was ideal for hitters. So they were still kind of hitting line drives and they were on plane with it. So my theory is that, so my cutter was five vertical break, negative two horizontal. My sinker was six horizontal or five horizontal or uh, vertical. So they were vertically the same, just negative two for the cutter and then 17 arm side for the sinker at, you know, sinker was 93, cutter was 89. So kind of close in below, but still the same vertical break. So kind of on the same plane and they only had to guess inside or outside, right? Is it going to run in on me or is it going to run away from me? When it ran in, it would have, you know, low exit below. It would jam them a little bit, but it would still be a line drive. Obviously, hitters are trying to hit the ball out of the park and get ideal launch angles. So a launch angle was good for them, but the exit below wasn't so high, but I was still giving up, you know, as much as people want to say, oh, like they're just bloopers and whatever. It's like, well, a base is loaded bloopers clearing the bases because it just went down the line and it doesn't look good for me. And I never had anything to beat lefties. Like I got them in two strikes. I still didn't feel like I was in the driver's seat because I had almost no put away pitch with them. Even if, if I hadn't shown them a change up yet, still a difficult pitch to throw. And I have to like, I have to get them to swing at that. That's not really a take third strike pitch. That's a like, gotcha. You thought it was a fastball pitch. Um, so hoping they swung at it, it would have to be in a good location for them to miss at it. So there's not really much room for error with righties. I could, you know, jam them in and they, it would, it would run under their bats sometimes, or, you know, I'd mistakenly throw it high and they would still swing and miss, but lefties, I had no two strike option. And really it was just like throw it over the plate and hope they don't hit it. And if you pulled up those numbers, that's kind of what it looked like. Um, so the goal for this off season is to separate that vertical break on it so that assuming my sinker is back at like five, six inches vertical, and then hoping to get, that rudder, um, which is what my pitching coach has been calling it, obviously is a combination riding cutter. It's kind of riding still, and it's not really cutting so much. It's more perceived cut um, to the hitter. So I'm trying to get that at like, let's say 12. Anything over 12 would be ideal, which would give me, you know, six, seven inches where they have to decide now. And now because I'm throwing it, I'm more behind it, getting more vertical break. I'm throwing it a little bit harder than what I was before. So now they have two hard pitches. One is going to be, you know, sinker is going to be six inches and running away. And rudder is going to be, say, 13 and zero. So perceived cut, and it's going to be riding a little bit. So they have to decide up and down and left and right. And that's just with those two fastballs. Now you mix in the changeup, which is also arm side and slower. So now they're guessing in front or behind like depth of when they have to swing that's more important pitching has always been messing up timing and trying to get them to swing and miss bad contact so if you're looking at the three planes um you have your xyz so you have depth which is your velo are they going to be out front or are they going to be behind it are they going to be a, a swing above or below it and then inside or outside so before they they didn't have to decide 
too much on up and down and even 93 and 89 is pretty close. They don't have to decide in front or behind as much. So they're only deciding one of those planes, which is in and out. Now the velo is similar, but now they have to guess two planes up, down, and then left, right. So I'm hoping that works out <laughs> and it can get these damn lefties out and uh, cause problems for them instead of me. Yeah, for sure. So you mentioned sinker. Now you got the rudder slider change up of all of those which one do you feel is metrically the most elite and is that your go-to pitch being that you throw it the most often get hitters out the most etc just looking at movement I'd, I'd say slider sliders generally perform better i've been throwing it i used to call it a curveball until covid pretty much and then i came back after that and I was like, oh, my arm shot's kind of low. Like, curveball doesn't make sense. I'll just call it a slider. And then I started throwing it harder because I was thinking slider instead of curveball, which turned into a sweeper, which teams, people didn't really call it a sweeper back then. Mine was kind of just a bigger slider. Nobody really threw it, I say, back then, which was 2021. But the game changes so quick. Not a lot of guys threw it back then, so hitters didn't see it. So it performed a little better. Now everyone and their mother throws a sweeper, so hitters are seeing it every other pitch. Literally every uh, pitch. <laughs> so it still performs well, but definitely hitters are seeing it more. So it's not just flip it over anymore. But I still think I think that's my best. And then second best, probably my sinker. So that's kind of my main two, which is why I have success against righties. So metrically, they're the best and they're, they're both your go-to. So that makes sense. Um, so obviously we've taken a nice deep dive into how Nick has learned to blend data with his own decision-making when it comes to his personal arsenal. I want to take a quick detour and briefly just talk about the kind of coach and person that Nick is before we wrap up here. Um, firstly, if you don't already, please go follow Nick's pitching Instagram account, Who's Pitching. He's got some great educational content up there, and it's definitely worth a follow. Secondly, when I was working with Nick as one of his remote athletes back in 2020, the two main things that consistently came through to me time and time again was number one, his passion and his fire for the game of baseball. And two was his genuine care for wanting to help people in the world of baseball development. So being a remote coach myself for the past year and a half, I can confidently say that those are two qualities that I personally try to have with my remote athletes. And I 100% tried to emulate you, Nick, when learning how to connect with athletes on a remote level. So the fact that Mark and I and all of our listeners had the chance to sit down and hear from such a knowledgeable and passionate professional baseball player and leader within the field of player development is such a pleasure for me and both of us and all of our listeners. And I hope that our listeners really got a chance to soak up all the information that we hashed out tonight. So just want to say thank you again for coming on the podcast. It was a true pleasure. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks for the kind words. You didn't have to do that. <laughs> All right. Well, as always, we'll catch you next time on the next episode of the Sweet Spot Podcast. Podcast.